0: Good morning and welcome to another episode of Black Excellence in Higher Education. I'm your host, Ignacio Alvarado, Student Engagement Specialist with Black Programs, and today we have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Patrick Turner, the Director of First Year Initiatives. Many of you know him as an educator, a mentor, and a friend. Dr. Turner, we're happy to have you with us today this morning.
1: Well, good morning. I'm happy to be here
0: with you as well. Thank you again for the invitation. Yes, it's our pleasure to have you with us. So to start off and kind of break the ice how about you tell us a little bit about yourself you know your place of origin any hobbies fun facts that we don't already know (laughs)
1: Uh, a little bit about myself Uh, that seems like a very large question but no I'm originally from uh, Birmingham Alabama that's why I was born that's why I grew up that's where all of my is I'm the youngest of five siblings uh, uh, four boys and, and, and one girl and uh, that's where I spent most of my my young uh, young life. You know, I was there until I was eighteen years old, and then I graduated uh, high school and I moved to Kentucky to attend Kentucky State University. But again, like I said, I, I grew up in Birmingham, uh, single parent home. My mother, you know, I knew my father, but he was kind of a uh, lived away, so I really didn't know him. You know, so we can't, that whole norm as far as you grew up in the in the projects. And you kind of uh, was on on uh, low income, you know. So you kind of fought, you kind of struggle. You grew uh, grew up in a gang infested neighborhood, you know. So all of those different things that you you sometimes hear, where where uh, oftentimes in those days, you know, you grew up in those type of environments. But uh, you know, grew up like I said, grew up luckily to have strong black a strong black mother. Luckily to have some strong brothers and strong sisters and aunts and all those different things who who uh, kind of uh, believed in excellence in everything that you do, you know, so we always participated in something. I was in the band. I ran track. I, I did everything, you know, to kind of stay in a constructive life. So those are some of the things that kind of shaped me. Some of my hobbies, uh, as you know, uh, personal fitness, uh, I was a dancer. So dance have always been a big piece of mine. I don't know if you knew this. I, I play the trumpet. I've played the trumpet since, uh, 18, well, not 18, 15 years old, you know, that was the scholarship that I got to get into college on a, on a band scholarship. So I played the the trumpet, the euphonium, uh, the tuba. Uh, so those are pretty much some of the fun facts of, uh, of, about me. You know, I'm pretty much an open book. My life kind of have culminated into one big moment, but those are some fun facts about me.
0: Awesome. I had no idea that you got into school on a music scholarship did you have like an affinity for music? Did you think at one point in your life you were going to go into a career in music? Uh,
1: not at all. Not <laughs> not at all. You know, um, what is interesting is uh, I come from a very musically inclined family, a very art. We're just very, uh, we're artists. My family are artists. You know, my, my brothers and sisters there are wonderful artists. Uh, and all of us have all of these different talents. I, I was actually thinking about going into uh, art. You know, because ever since I was a little kid, I used to I used to draw. Uh, instructors used to pull me out of class to draw murals on the wall and all those different things. And I actually got a uh, offer to attend an art institute in New York, but I realized art was just a part of me. But I didn't want to do it the rest of my life. You know, so you you realize there are some things you love doing, uh, but they're not things that you want to do the rest of your life. There, I don't want to say they're hobbies; they're just talents you have that you, you you use, but you don't want to make a career out of them. Or at some point you may want to make a career out of them. But with music, it was interesting. Again, my family was like, if you always, if you're going to do something, always do it to your best ability. Don't half step. And especially again, if, you know, when your family has a poor, basically your family is poor and you have to buy certain things like a trumpet or something like that. They, we can't be wasting money on you just playing around with things. So you need to be serious. So you don't have that time to vacillate from talent to talent to talent to talent. So, you know, so my mom purchased this, I said, I wanted to be in the band and my mom purchased uh, this hand-me-down trumpet. I think maybe somebody gave it to her, you know, sometimes your family provides and you don't know how, how she provided, <laughs> but she gave, she got me this trumpet because I said I wanted to play in the band when I was in the eighth grade. And I just did well. I excelled, excelled in, in, in elementary, I excelled in high school. And my band director, uh, actually, he recommended me uh, for a scholarship. And based on his recommendation, Kentucky State University was like, Hey, you know, he he sounds like a great guy. We're gonna offer him a full ride. But yeah, initially I was like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm gonna be a music major. But the first the first semester in college, I'm like, no, I don't wanna be a music major. You know, (laughs) most of the music majors didn't want to be music majors, you know. So it it has always been a part of me. My mom used my mom, my whole family sing. My mom used to sing with Shirley Caesar, all of those different things like that. Yeah, you know, and my mom and her sisters. They made a gospel album. They were nominated the first, um, uh, the Outstanding Gospel Women in Birmingham or something like that. So my family is, yeah, exactly. They made an album, all those different things. So I come from a very musically art-inclined in, family, you know, so, uh, yeah, to answer the question, I thought at some point I wanted to, to to be a music major when I got to college, but then that quickly was eliminated when I first started taking those music classes. <laughs>
0: That is incredible, and in
1: Birmingham, gospel is serious. So you know your mom was. Oh, <laughs> <Good evening. laughs> oh yeah, they could stomp down. They were they were called the Nolan sisters because all of them were sisters. all of her sisters. And when I say they could sing, sang, they could they could sing. You know, uh, because you know in Birmingham, like you said, in the South, you know you have all these gospel choirs. We come from a, a Pentecostal Pentecostal family. My mom was a choir director. My sister sings in a choir. All those different things like that. And, and like my, I said, my mom used to sing with Shirley Caesar when they first started off, you know. So, so yeah, you know, my mom, they they believe in singing. It's not singing; they believe in singing, you know. Uh, and that was something she always wanted me to do. And I started singing, but again, it's one of those things that you do, but it's not something you want to do as a career.
0: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, I know the feeling. Well, that was awesome. So you already kind of touched upon a little bit about your um. Educational journey, but would you kind of mind, um, you know, digging a little deeper into it to how it's like shaped you now, along with your professional journey? Uh, good question. Good question. Really, the first couple
1: of years, you're really just trying to find your way through, uh, because for my generation, we were just told, kind of, uh, we were just told, basically, you need to get a degree. We didn't say that you need to love what you do. We didn't say you need to get it in a specialized area. We didn't say you need to get an internship. So we were basically told that you just get a degree and the jobs are going to kind of flock to you. So that was kind of my expectation that if I got this degree in public administration, I, you know, I would graduate and these jobs would just flock to me. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case, you know, so, you know, you end up at that point, just finding jobs uh, of what you want to do. And that's kind of what I ended up doing. You know, I, I, uh, started working for, uh, for for Georgia State University for a little, little while, and then I decided I wanted to go uh, back to college to get my master's, so I went to Clark Atlanta for a little while, uh, and I realized that I wasn't getting the education that I wanted at that time from Clark Atlanta, you know, because I was still majoring in public administration, so I ended up trans- transferring back to Georgia State University, and that's kind of where my life started evolving around, you know, working with students, working with faculty, uh, working with student organizations. And I really start understanding that I had a passion, uh, not really, well, for education, but just seeing students evolve, seeing the growth, seeing all of these resources and opportunities on a college campus. You know, um, I wish at a younger age, I could could have kind of uh, that light bulb would have gone on when I was in undergrad, where you have all these resources, you have you have the faculty here. You know they're doing research in this, they're doing research in that, and 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 I think that was kind of that sparked for me, just being in an environment where you're continuously seeing students come through the doors, evolve into great, uh, wonderful adults, and then move on into their careers. That you see another crop of students coming in. And it's really motivating for me. So that's kind of how my my that spark began. And then and then I decided I wanted to go back and get my Ph.D. Uh, in educational, uh, uh, higher educational leadership curriculum instruction. Uh, so I've always known uh, for a long time now that I wanted to be in higher education. But it's really just finding your way through to find out what piece of that you wanna be in. And I realized that I love that, that interaction with students. I love research. I love uh, uh, um, student engagement, You know, working with students orga- organization and all those different things. So that's kind of how all of those things kind of came to be. Nothing that I purposely did. I just kept moving forward and, and I found something that I like to do and just kind of start building on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you said that. And I can say as someone who's moving towards a career path in higher education, you know, you don't want to start out thinking in that mindset that you want to work with students and faculty and staff, but the more you get into it and the more you realize that you're building up that rapport and seeing people grow from the opportunities that you give them, it's pretty incredible to, like, see that whole journey transpire in front of your eyes. Exactly. You kind of already covered it, but, um, and it'll follow one of my questions down the line, but you <laughs> more, when it comes to being a student, especially a student of color, when, you know, we're graduating high school and our supportive circle around us is saying, you know, you need to go to college and get some degree, just some degree, even if you don't necessarily know what kind of degree you want to go to. Would you mind kind of expanding on that struggle?
1: Well, uh, again, I, my family, my mom, uh, she had she had 11th 11, 11 grade uh, uh, education. My father, as I said, I didn't really know him, uh, but he had a twelfth grade education. So she really never talked to us about college. Period. You know, most of the time, parents like that they they know the value of an education, but they don't know what to say about education. So they teach you what they know, how to work hard, how to be a great person, how to, uh, 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 your word is your bond. So they teach you these these chari- characteristics and traits to just be a good, hardworking person. But luckily, and this is how things start connecting by me being in the band and, uh, and my brothers and all of them, one of my brothers, he was like all state track football. My sister, she was a cheerleader. And Did that was a major red. I had another brother in the ROTC. So all of us were able to connect with instructors, like high school instructors, and who really connected with us, and they only deserved, they only expected excellence out of you. They were like, you know, uh, because at my, the high school I went to uh, Carver High, George Washington Carver in Birmingham, we had certain reputations with our basketball team, our track team, our band, and it was always at excellence. So they always wanted, you know, though the high school was in, in the ghetto, in the projects, we always were able to compete with any and every school In the state. So you had those faculties and leaders in high school and in in elementary who who demanded excellence. Good wasn't good enough, Uh, or even superior, because in some of the competitions, it was excellent, then superior. Excellent just wasn't good enough. We all they had always had a superior rating, and that's that's what they always wanted every year: superior, superior, superior. And so when you when you see those type of things in in, in high school and, and 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 then your brothers and your sisters, my brothers and sisters, they all went to college as well. So that kind of paved the way for me. But again, you're still trying to navigate what this what a degree means to you and what can you do with a degree? You know, so uh, no one ever really told me what I could do with the degree. Again, uh, though my brothers, all of them went, I still, interested enough, had to kind of navigate it on my own. I think it was almost like a rite of passage, or they didn't know what to say, or how to kind of let you know this is a path you should take. They just exposed you, and they supported you, but we never had that conversation, so you still kind of ended up having to navigate college on your own. So, I never really had someone to say, this is what you can do with your degree. This is the path that you should take. I even had an internship at the governor's office in Kentucky, at Kentucky State University, and I never had anyone to say, hey, you're doing an internship with the governor. You should take advantage of that because you're going into public administration. All I could think of in my head was, you know, I need to check this box off because I have to do an internship to graduate. But when I look back on it, I'm like, that was an amazing opportunity that no one told me to capitalize off of, you know, that I could have been, even the governor, the lieutenant governor invited us to his house to have dinner with his family. So, yeah, we worked for him for a little while for the whole summer. So he was very personable. That's one reason why I love to communicate with our students. And that's why I'm so hard on our students about creating a plan, because you can have this degree, but it does not Guarantee you a job. It does not guarantee you an opportunity. Now, it increases your opportunities in life because you're educated, but you have to still understand what it means, what you want to do, be around the people that motivates you because you can have this degree, but still not know what to do with it. You have this tool, but you don't know how to build the foundation. So that's why it's important that when I talk to students, these are lessons that I've learned that you have to have somebody in your life to say, hey, what are you doing? What are you planning on doing with this degree? You know, what company you want to work with? What title you want to work for? I mean, what title you want, you know, to to be able to kind of have this laser focus because you can have a good aim, but if you don't have a target, then
0: that's all you have is just an aim. (laughs) Yeah, I can definitely say from the student perspective that it's very difficult and cumbersome to, you know, navigate the school system and assume, okay, well, I'm in a STEM major, so I should have really good job security and benefits and, and then you know when you're like me I'm 20 years old and about to finish you get to that graduation stage and you're like oh I don't have a sound plan <laughs> definitely lot it's not enough to you know know what degree you want but it's also you have to have that plan and start formulating and looking through your whole um four years or two years and say well okay I've done this this and that so that should be able to be good experience and possibilities for this career so you know, I'm really glad we you about the internship and we don't consider how those internships can be applied to our career endeavors versus just, a, you know, a merit honor degree plan. So I'm glad you brought that up. But um, that kind of leads into my next question. So what would you say are the greatest challenges first year students face today and what can NMSU do to combat these challenges? I think the greatest challenge that uh, a lot of our students
1: face, our first year students coming into higher education is not understanding how uh, higher ed works, and they think that they should understand how education works, but they're coming into a new environment. So I don't really, the challenge is is really the institution, that a lot of time institutions think that just because you graduated from high school, just because now you're stepping through the uh, doors of the institution, that you are an adult, and you're not. You're still a developing adult. And it's our job to to really kind of escort you to inform you of what you need to do, how to do it, to really kind of take your hand that first semester, your hand and your parents hand to say, well, this is how you fill out financial aid form. This is how you choose a degree. No, you don't need to know. You don't need to have your life sewn up within the first year. So it's okay to not know what major you want to go in. It's okay not to know uh, what classes to take. That's what we are are, are here to help you do. But I think some of the challenges is that we don't communicate that sooner rather than later to students and their parents that we are here to support you. And, and don't feel that you need to have everything together when you walk through the doors. You're gonna make some misstep, you're gonna get frustrated, but our role here is to really help you navigate this environment, which is, which is college. you know. Uh, so I really most of the time put the responsibility or the challenges on the institution and not the, not the students, because again, when you understand the population of students that you serve, if you know that you serve students that are pati- particularly uh, first-gen students, generation students, the first, you know, to go to, the, to college in that family. If you know that you serve low-income students, if you know that you just serve students of color, that you know that sometimes there are some barriers that we put up in place, assuming that just because you walked through the door and that you got into college, that everything is just going to become this epiphany that you're going to realize and understand how to navigate college and that's just not that's just not the case so i think the challenge that most first year students coming through the door is that they think they need to to know everything and have everything together and our issue is we let them think that and we don't communicate sooner rather than earlier that we are here to help you create that plan and the plan is going to evolve don't think that the plan that you make in the first year is going to be the same plan in the second year and the third year students typically change their majors two to three times. We want to kind of minimize that because most of the time when they change their major they lose credits and that's money that you have used to pay for these classes. So I think the challenge that they face is thinking that they have to have it all together when they walk through the door. Uh, And our issue from the institution standpoint is is that we allow them to think that and and we need to correct that. And that's why that's one of the focus of my first year initiative to have that conversation with parents. They look, you don't need to know everything. Our job is to help you know, help you to navigate this. And things are going to change. Things are going to move around. But we're going to provide the support that you need. I'm really glad that you
0: brought up the, the standpoint of the institution needs to provide those supports and services because you know, college has the access to education that has the educators, but you need like um, a middleman to facilitate that guidance of information and that flow of knowledge so that way it's an easier transition for the students and their support systems. Because, you know, not only that, you have students who don't necessarily have their parents. Sometimes you have students who just have an older sibling or they just have a grandparent or, and sometimes they have to rely on just, you know, a close friend. So our students come from a diverse amount of backgrounds that not to mention they're students of color. And there's also the monetary toll, which i kind of like to get into. So big concern, this was a big concern of mine when I was entering higher education is the sheer cost of college. Cause when I got to MSU, I was making 725 an hour at McDonald's. So, you know, I was <laughs> so for me, the cost was very, um, important because i was doing my own thing going in college so what would you say to students whose big concern is how am i going to afford higher education and how am i going to afford this degree in the long haul you have to realize that and i and i used to work in
1: financial aid that was one of the jobs that i had but to let them know that you are your investment that understand the cost is a challenge for a lot of students because again especially if your family can't support you if they don't have any money like my mom didn't that all of us had to go to all of us had to get a scholarship there was no way that we were going to be able to go to college if we didn't get a scholarship because my mom again she couldn't afford it she was a single mom she uh she worked as a waitress at a at a and i remember this i'm i'm like i remember these things so vividly you know when i was a little kid that she worked at a waitress at, at a chinese restaurant but she barely could afford to put cl- uh, clothes on our backs and f- food on the table we either had to get a scholarship or we had to find another means to to, to get to, get to college and initially I wasn't even going to college. I had signed up for the Navy. I had signed up for the Navy. I had taken the physical for the Navy that I knew where I was going to be stationed in the Navy. I had been sworn in to go to the Navy. I knew when I was shipping off to go to the Navy. But luckily in my contract, they had this clause called delayed entry that if I got a full scholarship, that the contract with the Navy was null. And so at this point, I hadn't, I hadn't gotten a a full scholarship. So my other option at that time, a lot of people's option was to, to go, to go to, uh, to the, to the service, you know? So at this point I hadn't gotten a scholarship. I didn't know how I was going to go to college. So I'm like, I might as well just go to the Navy, you know? So luckily at the last, at the 10th hour, (laughs) this scholarship comes through the mail, this college, and and mind you, picture that this scholarship comes to the mail. I didn't know who this institution was. I'd never been to the institution. All I know is my band director recommended me for this scholarship. Uh, you know, so I'm flying blind going to this college, hadn't been to the campus, didn't know anything about the campus, hadn't done a campus visit. Uh, I understand that angst around the cost of college, but as I've uh, kind of grown and worked in higher education, I always let students know you are your greatest investment. You know, and I know sometimes you, you know, you it, the cost can be a, a fear for you, but there's a lot of scholarships out there you could that you can apply for. There's a, so you have to do your due diligence in applying for these scholarships. You can talk to your church about, about scholarships. You can look in your local community about different scholarships. So Don't always assume that people are just going to walk through your door and say, hey, here's a scholarship. You have to dig and And even if you have to take out a loan, understand that this loan is an investment in you. And and when we talk to students, like, don't take out any more than you need, because what we do is we take out way more than we need. We want to go on this shopping spree, want to buy these shoes, not knowing that as soon as you graduate, six months is like clockwork they're going to want their money back. So always see it as an investment. I know it may not be the route that you want to take with loans, but there's a, uh, interesting enough, there's a lot of scholarships out there now than it was back then with me in my generation for students, especially students of color, women in STEM, students of color in STEM, you know, so I think the world is really realizing or attention has been uh, paid, is being paid to, uh, everybody can't go to co- can afford to go to college. So we need to find a way for them to be able to access to a, a quality higher education, especially if you're from low income families. So there's a lot more, a lot more money out there now than it was way back then when I was, um, going to college, but I always tell students, see yourself as an investment. Yeah. It, it may seem a, you know, an expensive, uh, uh, an uh, uh, expensive investment, but think about it. You're not investing in something that's
0: going to depreciate. You're investing in yourself. Absolutely. I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear that. So that kind of moves on to the first year initiatives office. So you are the esteemed director currently <laughs> I'd like to, you know, know more about um what services do you offer first year students and how you guys typically operate? Yeah. How we typically operate. I
1: am a pretty much an office of one. I have a few graduate students, but I'm really an office, like an office of one. Um, But it's a fairly new office. We've been around for maybe a a year, year and a half now. Uh, But my research and my background is in the first year experience. And and luckily, our leadership here understands that that can be a great challenge to a lot of students, not only here at NMSU, but it is a, a larger issue around the world, especially within the U.S., That students oftentimes have difficulties transitioning from high school into college for whatever reason, it could be financial reason, it could be because they don't have, uh, they didn't have family to really talk to them about college, or they could have grown up like I did in an impoverished neighborhood. So you're, though you're achieving in high school, you, you didn't realize that your high school curriculum wasn't on the level of college level. So you're doing what you're supposed to do. You're achieving. So when you get into college, you're like, oh, we didn't learn this in high school. You know, so you find that with a lot of our students, oftentimes they run into a lot of barriers, not because of their, their own doing, but because of maybe their, their, their neighborhoods, maybe because their, their high school system, maybe because of finances. That they have difficult, uh, uh, they have barriers that are uh, that causes them not to stay that first year. So what our office do? We work with families. We work with K through 12 high schools. Actually, I was at Anyate uh, High School the other day working with some of the counselors and the juniors and seniors there. And uh, uh go and I go to a lot of these uh, fairs, college fairs, to really offer opportunities for the, the family to understand that. The first year is challenging, but our office really work with you to help your your student transition into the college environment. We work one-on-one with the students and talk about the challenges of college. We offer workshops. Uh, We offer workshops on financial management. We we have workshops on being able to develop your own skills. We have a lot of classes, uh, like the first-year experience class that helps students, that teach students those skills on study skills, time management, uh, stress management. So we try to offer the one-on-one and group kind of counseling, I would say, on the academic side and the social side to really help students to kind of demystify this whole first year. Because oftentimes one of the students told me that, that they're afraid, they don't know if they're going to make friends, they don't know if they are going to be, be able to keep up in the class. And so we our role is really to kind of sit down with the student, their family, and even sometimes their high school teachers and counselors to really offer these workshops. Even over in Arrowhead, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be working with some of the the students at Arrowhead uh, Early College to to talk about the psychology of money, about financing your your higher education, about uh, some of the challenges. So really working with students coming into college, we work with sophomores, juniors, and seniors, because again, you face challenges at different junctures of your academic career, but we really focus in on kind of tailoring our service to, to those students who are really trying to make that first year transition from high high school to college, or even transferring from a different college into NMSU because they run into the same challenges that oftentimes they come from maybe small college campuses or small high schools. And now you're on this large college campus, you're overwhelmed, you can't make friends, you know, and sometimes students go into depression. So we kind of help them uh, uh, become comfortable with the campus, connect with the
0: services, and and navigate the academic piece. I'm so glad to hear that not only is the first year office like you know focused on the educational aspect of um, maintaining your classes and formulating that degree plan but also the social aspect because I can tell you with um (laughs) very challenging especially in terms of that circumstance because circumstance can play a vast role in how they're going to be able to navigate the world of higher education like you know, our students from like Alaska I'll work with, and they're talking about feeling homesick. And I can tell you right now, I'm from El Paso, Texas, 30 minutes away from Las Cruces. And I feel (laughs) like I can only imagine how you feel if your family's in Alaska or, you know, a foreign country. So, you know, socially it can be a very large challenge to, you know, navigate and blend in. Would you mind kind of expanding on like the social aspect of that and, you know, how students can feel better accommodated to blend in their first year? Oh, yeah. That social
1: a- aspect is key. Is It actually weighs a little bit heavier on students in the academic because, again, we talk about creating a sense of belonging. And belonging comes from you feeling connected to the campus, feeling that you have a voice in the campus, feeling that you matter. But, you know, because what I've found out over many years of in education is that you have students who, who can be high-achieving students. They can be straight-A students. They can be uh, 3.5 students. But if they don't feel that they belong on campus or they don't have that connection that roots them into the campus that they will leave because they just still feel isolated. They feel depressed uh, because they can't make any friends. They haven't made that connection. And who wants to be somewhere and be on campus and be in classes every day when you haven't made any friends, when you, when no one you can talk to or lean on or when you run into problems as all, all of us do that you have no one to talk to, you know? So that's why we focus on that social And and for me, when I was in college, and that's why I always push so hard for the social piece, because I went to the HBCU. And if you know anything about HBCUs, we're going to get down, we're going to boogie. I was in the band. So we're going to rock, you know, even before classes started the band comes during the summertime. So that's when you make all your friends. That's where you build these connections. You go home with them for the weekend. You know, so I've been to Detroit, New York. Those were my first trips actually outside of Birmingham and going to Kentucky. My first exposure to kind of going to other places were in college, you know, where, where I went home with some of my friends from, from Detroit, from New York, from St. Louis. And because we had a close connection, You know, so that social piece roots students into the campus and and what is ironic, even if a student is flunking out, which I see that all the time, even if they're flunking out, they don't want to leave because they'd have made so many friends at the campus, You, (laughs) you know, so that lets you know when they feel, when a student feels value, when they feel that they're connected that they want to stay in college no matter what. You know, so that's what you want that when, when when your students run into challenges, when they run into barriers, when they have an issue that they didn't flunk the test, that they have someone to talk to, they have someone to lean on, that they have someone to vent to. So that social piece is key because you're going to be in this environment at least for years. So who wants to be in a place where they just come, take classes and go home? Come, take classes, go home. Come, take classes... You know, so the experience that I had in college, I had an amazing experience. I was even Mr. Kentucky State University. I was the first Mr. Kentucky State University that they they had. I was invested in that campus, you know. So that's the experience that I want students to have that you want to be so connected to the campus that when homecoming comes, you want to come back from homecoming and run into all of your old friends, your frat brothers, student organizations. So that's what it means to me, because the experience that you, this social experience that you build with students, those are the people who are going to go into the world. Those are your internships that when your students need internships, those are those students. When you, when your students, when you need people to donate back to the campus for scholarships, those are your alumni, you know, so it's a revolving cycle, but you have to make sure that students have the best social experience. Cause even if they have the best academic, they'll say, Hey, yeah, I went to a good school, but they're not connected. You know, so is that this is finding that balance between the academic and the social. So, yeah, it's very important because, like I said, that's what kind of rooted me in my college experience.
0: Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. So I got to ask. Um, so how has it been you know, serving these students in a virtual format? Because I can say virtually <laughs> it's very difficult to um, provide resources and opportunities to students. So I can imagine from your end, it's very challenging to make that connection right now.
1: It is, it is, it is, you know, because I'm used to, I am a let's hang out, let's talk face-to-face type of person, you know, so it has been challenging, you know, uh, that we've had to pivot and provide these services, because I know that when we talk about the social environment for students, that, yeah, we can provide as much as a social atmosphere online, but it's not like a face-to-face environment, you know, where you could talk to people, you could chit-chat, you can laugh, even in your classes, you get to know people, but there's still that barrier. Because guaranteed, you can see the same person every day online. If you see them in person, you probably wouldn't even recognize them because people look so different in person than they do on face to face if you don't know them. You know, so there's something about that human connection, seeing the expression on, on people's faces, all those different things. So, and plus online wasn't really built to be the exact same way as face to face, you know, because oftentimes we say, Oh, online is just like face to face. No, it is it's not because it wasn't built that way. It was built as a different, what we call different modality to teach and to provide a broader audience access to education, you know, especially people who didn't have access to a quality education or quality instructors. Online allowed you to be able to take a class at Harvard, be able to take an online class at Yale, be able to take an online class, but it was never built to be a uh, face to face experience it's a different experience not good or bad it's just a different experience you know so for me i really think st- students miss that opportunity because again that's a part of that college experience and even when i talk to our students they're like they feel like they missed that college experience being online you know being on campus being able to have parties being able to go to football games basketball games because again that social piece that social connection is key. That's why I'm hoping that we are able to get back to, uh, in some format, the face-to-face in the fall, because I think we're going to lose a lot of students who are like, I didn't pay for an online degree. You know, that wasn't my idea. I came to NMSU because it's a big, beautiful campus, and I wanted to go to the football games and the basketball games. You know, so we're going to have to get back to that format. But I, it's been an adjustment. And, you know, I like it because, again, we're able to reach more students. And more community members, because we have some community members who always want to come to some meetings, but they live in El Paso or Albuquerque. So we've been able to reach a larger audience. So we will continue, even when face-to-face, we will continue to offer some hybrid type of format so we can still reach those people who can't be here
0: face-to-face. But it has been a challenge, I think, for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely say it has been a challenge, but it has at the same time unlocked various Pedagogies and how we can reach out students, and I think it'll let us be, you know, more vigilant in how we're outreaching and providing support for students. Definitely. So, moving forward, could you describe the Men of Color Initiative and how you are supporting young men with their journey through higher education? If you don't mind.
1: Oh, not a problem. Not a problem. Again, it's one of those new initiatives here at NMSU. Uh, but my research, my research background is working with as as we talked about earlier, the first year experience. But I, I always look and drill my data down or disaggregate my data by populations of students, which one is the men of color and, and what we've known for maybe over the last, well, period, we've known, but only what we've recognized over the last maybe 20, 30 years, that men of color, whether you're talking about Native American, African American, uh, Hispanic, Latinx, that we don't fare as well as our white counterparts and we don't fare as well as females when it comes to re- being retained in college persistence and graduation rate. And that's not just here at NMSU, that is around, around the U.S. at pretty much every college and university that, yet, that you see. You know, So when you see a deficit like that, a gap like that, that you have a large population of 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 men or people who are not brilliant minds, brilliant minds that are not making it to the finish line, then their ha- alarm needs to go off. Especially if we're talking about uh, equal access. Especially when we're talking about providing equity and educational access and support in higher education. Then in any business, that if you're losing half of your if, uh, of a lot of your co- uh, your your customers are leaving and you don't know why, then you that's bad business. And then you don't have these people who, who these men who, who uh, would have these degrees and go into the work world and become uh, uh, these doctors, these lawyers, you know, so because as I said before, an education is an, is an opportunity that a lot of these men are missing out on. So I was looking at the data here at New Mexico State University, and it's the same trend is here, but not so much the first year that our males are doing very, very well during the first year. So we are retaining them that first year, say about 80%. 80% of our males come back for their second year. But then when we look at the the second year to the third year, that number drops to like 30, 40%. So you're having a large population of, of males that They have fought through the first year. They came back the second year, but something happens within that second year that serves as a barrier that they don't return for for their third year. And so that's what my research looks at and work with institutions to, to say, hey, it's not their fault. I'm always looking at it from the institutional deficit. What are you not doing to, to provide support for them. What are you not doing? Are you not asking the right questions? Is it financial? And what we really realize that a lot of times, when, especially when you look at uh, several communities of color, that as we're being groomed, education is not on the top of the list when they talk to males about being successful. You know, they may talk about sports. They may talk about how strong you are. They may talk about how many girls you have. They take up talk about how much bling-bling you have. But they never say, oh, you need to be an outstanding student. You need to be on the debate team. You need to be, you know, so they never have the conversation that they have with women about the value of an education. You know, even in my research, I found some, some, some men of color, some young boys as well, who will actually mask being smart because they don't want their friends to know that they're very smart. Because being smart has always been associated, being book smart. Has always been associated with being feminine or a woman, you know. So a lot of them won't, won't take their books home. So we have, so there's a need from from K through 12 all the way up to higher education to to kind of rewrite this narrative. And then also you find out that a lot of times the men uh, uh, they see this responsibility as being breadwinners. That when things go wrong at home, they have to drop being in school and go back home to get a job because the family needs food, bills need to be paid, you know, so oftentimes that burden, though we say, oh, we're an equal society that women, you know, can carry as much as the weight as a man, the man, oftentimes he's still looked upon in a certain way if he doesn't provide for his family. So he always feel that responsibility, whether it's true or not true, even if she says, stay in college, we'll struggle. He still feels that responsibility to drop everything and go home or even some some cultures like the Native American culture that oftentimes family pulls them back as well, especially if they don't go to a tribal college. You know, so they have you know, so that our goal, the men of color goal is really to work with all communities to talk about this, 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 this pressing issue that is is an issue not just here, but around the U.S., that there is a population of brilliant students that that are not being supported and educated, or even if families and communities are not being of supported and educated in a certain way to say, hey, look, you know it an education, let them go to college, we'll help provide them to go to college because they can, they can provide greater support when they come home. You know, so we, we, we provide that support. We hang out, that social piece we talked about. We, we, we go to tutoring sessions, you know, because it's about that academic and that social support. And then breaking down those barriers of what, what is considered masculine, you know, because oftentimes men have this warped idea of what masculinity is. And again, that starts from when you're a young child and they start giving this doll to this person and this doll to this person, or you wear this color, you wear this color, you know, so you have to kind of start breaking those things down because even how sometimes men define masculinity serves as a barrier to them as well. You know, it's like, you know, they will choose certain majors because like, oh, I don't want to go into nursing because that's a woman's field. Really? Really? You know, men make a whole lot of money in the nursing field, you know. <laughs> you know, so we break down and have those conversations and provide that support to uh to 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 kind of rewrite this narrative about what it means to to be uh, male and masculine. Uh, you know, even I work with uh, uh Sophia over in the LGBTQ because again, I, I like to pull everyone into this conversation, you know. So I let everyone know it's you know, I don't care who you are, I don't
0: care what your background is. This conversation requires all of us to be at the table. Yes, absolutely. And I find even though our society is, you know, progressing and we're, you know, talking about gender dynamics and, you know, how that plays into higher education, it does feel like we're kind of playing on this idea that we still value, you know, the size of a man's muscles or the size of his educational wealth and brain. And, you know, we tend to undervalue, you know, just the different dynamics that are happening in different majors. You know, my grandfather, he's actually a nurse, and something that was um, blocking his pathway into, you know, getting his master's degree for that was how many women there are. And, you know, we don't talk about (laughs) you shouldn't be gendering a major. If it's something that you're passionate about, it's something that's making you money, pursue it, go all the way for it, you know, that should never be a barrier for your own education. So I'm glad you brought that up. Moving forward, actually, so I'm sure you're already aware, but April 7th is actually World Health Day. And as someone who knows Dr. Turner, I can love to say, Dr. Turner, move and groove. I get tired just looking at you, and I'm 20 years old. <laughs> so as someone who is very physically active, very physically active, what does mean to you? Well, and it's so funny because for me uh, –
1: you know, it's a great opportunity. You know, of course, the, the, the World Health Day or the World Health Organization, what they call WHO, um, you know, they really celebrate this on a national on a national level to kind of bring awareness and to get people moving, to, to, to start looking at your health, whether you're talking about your physical health, your mental health, uh, you know, all those different things. But for me, uh, health and wellness have kind of always just been uh, a lifestyle. And I think that's what people have to realize That is a lifestyle, Uh, because as I said earlier, most of us, uh, my brothers and sisters, we were always very active. You know, so we, my mom never really let us eat junk food. She never really brought junk food into the house. She always brought fruits, fruits, and not that she was saying, "Oh, you need to eat healthy." Believe me, we had our fried chicken and our mashed potatoes and all those different things. But she always would always bring yogurt and and uh, apples and oranges and all those different things uh, into the house, you know, and then plus all of us were very active, you know, and coming along with that, you know, we just kind of picked up certain traits of how to eat, you know, if you're running track, what's the best food to eat? So it was kind of things that we picked up along the way. And then when I got into dance. You know, I started dancing and, and, and dance again. We are, we're constantly eating broccoli. We're constantly eating cucumber, you know, in between performances to keep our, our energy level up. And then plus, you have to get into this small little costume at that time. So you can't be looking wrong on the stage if you've eaten a, a Debbie cake. Uh, so, so, you know, and even with, you know, becoming a personal trainer, you know, so what I, it has become really a lifestyle for me. Not that I don't eat my Big Macs, not that I don't eat, have my junk food day, but I think what people have to realize is that this celebration is, is, is great during that time period, but you have to really start seeing how can I tweak things throughout the day to create, you know, not revamping your, 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 your whole lifestyle, because as a personal trainer, I used to work with different com- communities of color. And if you look at our diet and what we eat, don't tell black folks not to eat our, uh, our mashed potatoes or our bread and all that different stuff. But what you teach, or even on t- the Hispanic community, don't tell them not to eat their tamales and all those different, and rice and all those different things. <laughs> but what you do you start educating people on you can eat these things, but you have to balance it out with exercise. You have to balance it out with going to the doctor, get a checkup, you know, especially if diabetes run through your family, if obesity run through your family, if hypertension run through your family. You know, so for, for me, it's, all, it's, it's, it's just an everyday thing that I try to practice, you know, and, and, and incorporate in my diet, because I always tell people, you know, I tell people that, it's, it's a lifestyle, so don't lock yourself into something you can't do for the rest of your life or over the next year. You know, people go on these extreme diets or take on these extreme workout plans, and within a month or two, they've resorted back to what they, their old behavior. So the idea is to start tweaking things in your diet, things that can be long-lasting, you, uh, you know, and, and and understand it's not just about the exercise, because exercise is only a small part of it. If, if I had to balance it out, is 60% nutrition, 40% exercise. People think I can just work out, work out, work out. And maybe you can because you're, you're younger and you can eat whatever you want at this point. But uh, what people have to realize, you know, it's about the whole body, the mental piece, getting the mental checkup, all those different things. So when we talk about world health, I think I, I like that it's a great opportunity to kind of bring awareness to different aspects of health and wellness, but I still would want people to recognize that it is a lifestyle, that that even with me as I get older, things, your body is just gonna automatically start breaking down like anything else that gets old, an old car. I don't care how much you keep up a car. There's just that deterioration, natural deterioration that starts happening. And the more you keep yourself at a certain fitness level, it really kind of buffers that a little bit. It doesn't stop it, but it really delays that. Uh, Even when I had my hip surgery uh, last summer, my recovery was much faster because I was in a, a certain level of shape and 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 nutrition levels. So people have to realize that it has to be a lifestyle uh, because as you get older, it becomes more important because your body is going to slowly start uh, breaking down.
0: Yes, hundred percent. I'm always like wowed out by you and Miss Kim because y'all are always getting there. Miss Kim will be in her joggers and she'll be she won't hesitate to do a push up or a jumping. <laughs> yeah. Look, I am.
1: <laughs> I am turning 50 Thursday, so I need to keep it all together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you can probably move faster than me. (laughs) But yeah, I feel like um, health has also been like um, a changing topic, especially as, you know, we're stuck at home, so we're starting to try out dieting and juicing. Like, you know, I was on that vegan craze for a bit, but then I I was chicken, so we're probably going to have to. But, you know, we definitely do have like a warped sense of health. Like people seem to forget that, um, you know people who are diabetic aren't necessarily morbidly obese people don't realize that i was actually pre-diabetic for a couple of years and i am a twig <laughs> so right right we definitely have um some unfounded and beliefs and prejudices when it comes to health lifestyle and diet so i'm really glad that you brought that up mm-hmm. so you know something i don't know people know about you but you were actually a dancer for quite a while so when <laughs> expanding about your ideas of professional dance and before you start something that always like blew my mind when you talked about it was um you described you know some of the issues of um colorism and discrimination that you experience you know as a dancer you know you have to have those colored tights that match your outfit and skin tone so would you kind of mind um expanding about some of your experiences through that yeah there's. oh
1: <laughs> yeah that was uh and it still is a part of me again that was uh, an amazing time. And I still stay connected to dance. I still work with some dance companies. Uh, even here, I worked with a ballet company uh, two years ago. We did Carmen, the ballet uh, Carmen here in Las Cruces. And, and so I, it still is a major part for me because that played actually uh, a pivotal point in who I am and, 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 and how I approach my life and my career. But as we talked about earlier, with me being a dancer, of course, you have all these different stereotypes. But I used to, when I first started dancing, I was really the only black person in the room. You know, uh, because most of the time it was white ballet companies, uh, you know, because I got started late in life. Uh, I got started in ballet actually when I was 21, which is which is definitely late, you know, because most people start when they're three and four. And of course, I'm from a uh, a menial <laughs> background, a very poor background. You know that. Plus, those stereotypes that goes with, with with ballet and all those different things. So, I didn't really get started until later in life. So, I had to be full speed ahead. I had to be. I actually gave up a job so I could dance, train full time to catch up and make up for time. But, but what 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 you start really realizing is within the dance world, and and as you're seeing now, a light has been shined on. Same thing, people of color. Uh, functioning in what was kind of considered a white world of ballet. You know, people have no problem with you doing hip hop. People have no problem with you doing jazz. But when it comes to ballet, it was always seen as a a white talent, uh, a white form of dance, you know, and they kind of subjected or still do subject uh, people of color to those different types of, of barriers that you may not get the leading role because most of their constituents are white, a white audience, so they want a white face out there, or even when you're wearing your tights and buying your costumes, uh, because what most of the costumes or most of the tights that you wear are either pink or, or white, so you're a Black person with pink or white tights, so so what you have is a bunch of Black companies out there now that are emerging, like Ethnic is a Black ballet company in Atlanta, you have Dan Theater of Harlem in, uh, in New York, who wanted to to bring forth these black ballet companies who who cater to black folks and our black bodies you know because white companies would tell young ladies that their bust was too big or their butts was too big or their hair was too kinky you know so you would get all of these different things that would just tear away at you or you're too you're too fat you know so you get all of these different things more so with the women men We we have our barriers as well when it comes to that. But most of the time, the the young ladies get it because ballerinas come a dime a dozen. So you can have hundreds of women competing for one role. So so when you look so they are able to kind of make these demands and kind of strip you down and say you're too big and you're or you're too fat or your skin is too dark or Uh, Or, you know, or you have to wear white makeup and you have this dark skin, you know, so it's all around this idea of of whiteness that they that they they see it as a white, a white, I like to call it sport or white art a white craft. So you have a lot of people of color who have suffered through the years, this verbal and mental abuse with some of these companies, with a lot of these companies, you know, and it's because, again, you hire me, but then you strip me down and you break me down like I'm not good enough. And that really tears away with your self-esteem. And luckily, I've never had to face that type of, of discrimination. But I've had instances, again, where we had to alter the choreography that we, you know, because, again, we were we were performing in a certain area like Mississippi or, or some southern states that wouldn't, take kindly to this black guy caressing this, this white ballerina on stage and, and having this moment a romance moment, you know, so we've had to alter those, those different types of of things. Because like I said, luckily, I hadn't had to run into many of those because I, I danced with a black ballet company that the white company that I did dance with, the, the, uh, the, the owner of a company, he was, he was, uh, from the Philippines. So he understood the, the nature of that, but still when you look across the spectrum, that it is still a lot more work that needs to be done in that area, because now you have a lot of black ballerinas who are like, no, you know, you should embrace who I am. You know, no, you should have black tights. You should have brown tights. You should have brown point shoe. Those shoes that the young ladies stand on top of, they come in pink what do i look like and 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 if if you know about ballet your the ladies point shoe supposed to be an extension of their foot meaning that it doesn't really supposed to look like a shoe on your foot so it should blend in your skin tone so what do i look like a dark female with a pink shoe on her foot <laughs> you know so that's why they wear the the pink tights but the black ballerinas are like why should i wear pink tights why don't you change the color of the shoe or what we would do we would take makeup and color our shoes to 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 uh, to uh to color our brown dark or whatever to look like our skin tone you know so but you shouldn't have to go through all of these additional steps to be included you know so you're seeing this huge movement in the dance world about uh, uh my buddy he has a movement in in uh in Atlanta called black boys dance he he has all these black bo- black guys who dance and do ballet it's called black boys dance. And then you have this ballerina movements and they're coming out with their stories about racism in the New York City Ballet and all these different companies. When you talk about racism, diversity, inclusion, it covers every aspect of our lives from from the business world to the art world to healthcare. So no one (laughs) is kind of eliminated from uh, uh, uh,
0: discrimination. Yeah, I had never heard when you first told me about, um, you know, being a ballet dancer, I had never heard of like a black ballet dancer. And I had to really think about it. I was like, <laughs> I don't hear about that very often. And it's very jarring to hear about, you know, this discrimination and these instances of just, you know, ingrained racism happening in dance. Because you really realize it's like, oh, this is, this is not just involved in like politics. It's in STEM. It's in, you know, it's even happening in like in NASA. It's happening in like every asset of the world. So we have to really like think about, you know, how we're being inclusive in different areas. It's not just um, a STEM thing. It's not just a politics thing. It's a fine arts thing. It's, you know, military it's, you know, all over. Yeah. It's a people's thing. What you really
1: realize is that you said people's thing that when we talk about systemic racism, it permeates every aspect of our, our lives. And, and it's sad because you have these beautiful brilliant dancers who, who are amazing, but because of their skin color, they won't get leading roles. And same thing in acting, that you put in the background. That's why the company in Atlanta, uh, Ballethec, which is a black ballet company, they the husband and wife started their company in Atlanta because they used to dance with, now, mind you, they were principal dancers, that they were the top of the top ballerina, her and her husband danced. They moved to Atlanta, they auditioned for Atlanta Ballet, which is a white Ballet company and they could not get a leading role. It's like we are the top dancers. We're in, you know, we've competed on the top level and we can't get a leading role at this company. So they luckily the husband and wife that has been their mission over the last 27 years that they open up a black ballet company in Atlanta and they've been thriving. That's
0: that's a great story to hear from them. Mm So going off of that, so you've traveled to, you know, many places. That is incredible to be a young man getting to travel to, you know, <laughs> town to New York and Detroit. That I am so jealous. <laughs> but, you know, now you're here in um, Las Cruces, New Mexico. So I'd kind of like to see what makes Las Cruces so different compared to all the other places that you've traveled to. You know, what about the zeitgeist here is really, you know, so different and welcoming?
1: Well, I think what... I, I I'm typically I love to travel, but I travel on my I love adventures. Let's say that I love adventures. And New Mexico was kind of like I saw this job that was kind of posted and I'm like, hmm, New Mexico. That sounds interesting. Where is New Mexico? You know, and I'm I'm luckily I am able to do that to kind of say, hey, let me try this place. You know, uh, though, I was still, like I told you, laser focus on what I wanted my career career to move to. I'm still looking from a career perspective, but Coming to New Mexico, it, it has been wonderful. You know, I I call it it is one of those best kept secrets that New Mexico is one of those small, kind of quaint towns that people talk about, but it's one of those towns that are are progressive, that they're becoming, you're having more people from other places who are moving here. There's a lot of opportunity to move it forward because a lot of the other places that I've moved were kind of already established, you know, that you could kind of fall in line and and do the same old, same old in those places, or the places I've moved, they say they wanted change, but they were very resistant to change. You know, so that's what's different about, I would say New Mexico, is that they understand that there's an opportunity for growth, there's a lot of potential here, especially at the, the institution, and leadership is willing to 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 engage ideas, new ideas and innovative ideas, which works well for me because I have a lot of innovative ideas, I have a lot of experience to bring. But plus it is a and and that's not only just the institution, but I see that around the community, that oftentimes they they want certain things to happen here in the community, but you don't, they are looking for someone to take that initiative. You know, so I can work with a a, a city or state that, that recognize that there's some growth opportunity for them, and they're just looking for that person to take it forward. So that's what I love about uh, New Mexico and especially Las Cruces that's different from other places. Other places, they had their own identity. It was always, already established. They didn't, they didn't really want to change. They were already progressive. All you had to do was fall in line and do what you were told to do. Or, like I said, other places, you go, they say they want change, but then they're very, very resistant to that change. But what I see here is that uh, Las Cruces and New Mexico is, is really embracing the opportunity for change. They're really embracing the opportunity for diversity, equity, and inclusion, which I can work with that because you want to look for people with innovative ideas who who want to move that dial forward. You know, uh, so it, it, it doesn't matter if you're at the front of the pack or the back of the pack, I can work with a place that's really trying to go somewhere and really embracing different ideas. So when I move here, that's always the kicker for me. Can I thrive where I am? You know, I can love the environment, but if I cannot thrive and meet my goal and my mission, then I need to go somewhere else that I can do that. Because again, though I, I, I've i been in this field a long time, there's still a lot of goals and dreams that I want to uh, uh, accomplish. And I need to align myself with those schools, those communities that are able to help accommodate my dream. You know, So that's why I love being here because I see some great opportunity here uh, uh, with the community as well as the school. And that's what kind of uh, where this, this
0: uh, Las Cruces and New Mexico kind of differ from other places. Yes. And going back to what you said, it's all about thriving. You know, I can say one reason why I love Las Cruces because, and it's really unfortunate, but as um, a young man of color, I, whenever I'm thinking about traveling or going to another place in the future, I'm always like, but I want to face, you know, discrimination here, discrimination there. But, um, you know, fortunately, I've never had to like question that with Las Cruces. I'm like, you know, I'll be okay. Like, I won't have to face the problems I would face in you know Mississippi or Georgia, I'll be uh, <laughs> safe here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, what would you say to any prospective faculty and staff who are interested in joining NMSU? I would say, come willing to work. I come, come with an open mind. Come with uh, some
1: innovative ideas because it's a great community. There's a lot of opportunity here. You know, and 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 the leadership leadership is key. And and for me, our leadership here, they have a vision for the institution, and it's a very clear vision, and it's not a vision that they're saying, this is my vision, I'm just going to accomplish this vision, but they're welcoming everyone to the table to have a piece in that. You know, because again, at the end of the day, my my goal is to be very student-centered. You know, so I have an issue, I take issue when people come into higher education, but they don't want to deal with students. It's like, well, how can you come into higher education but you don't want to deal with, deal with students, you know? So I, I, my advice to them is, this is a great opportunity for you. Even some of my friends, I keep telling them, hey, you may want to come to New Mexico that they don't have that many people of color in the STEM field. You may want to come and teach here; it's a great opportunity. So I've been promoting it to a lot of my 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 colleagues in the STEM field because I'm like, this is a great opportunity for you. And unfortunately, some of the faculty here are not taking advantage of that opportunity because sometimes you get rooted in old leadership, of and you get bitter, and you keep take you keep taking that bitterness forward. But it's like you have a new group of leadership, you have a new t- team, so you have opportunities here that you can't get past the past and see what's in front of you. You know, so anybody who's coming here, especially when you talk about faculty staff, I'm telling them this is a great opportunity for you. You have great leadership in place, you have great students here. It's a great uh, community. It would embrace you for whatever talents and skills that you have. You know, so come ready to work because it's a great opportunity
0: where you can thrive. Yes, 100%. Absolutely. So, um, you know, facing more just like students, young professional side, I'm very interested to hear your answer about this because you're all about, you know, <laughs> about the next generation of young professionals for success and going against the challenges and predicaments they can face along the way. But um, what are the essential steps that young professionals must take to reach success in this world? That's a that's a big question there, because there's
1: so many lessons that I've learned, uh, so many lessons that I've learned. Um, I think these are the things that I, I, I think I wish someone would have told me younger to to, first of all, align yourself with people who are who will support you, but yet challenge you. You know, um, that that is that is key. Anybody can be a yes person, but you want somebody who's going to push back on you and say, no, I expect better from you that you can do better than this. Why why did you settle for a B when you could have gotten an A? You know, so surround yourself with, you know, and that was one great thing I had with some of my colleagues that we were best friends, but we had this little competition that would go go along. If they got this position, then you want to get another position higher than them. And we still do that, but it's all in support. So you want people around you who support you, yet challenge you, uh, because that's going to be key to your your career and you moving forward. Another piece is understand success doesn't happen between eight and five. That oftentimes we want to think, oh, I put my work in from eight to five, so I'm good. no. What I've done throughout my career, and I would say have been kind of the, the, the root of my success, is that most time, those people that you see that are very successful, eight, into, 8 to 5 is just the beginning part of the day. They're working from 6 to 10 to 9 to 11 because they love what they do, and it doesn't feel like work but they know that in order for me to be successful, or even like I tell my students, same thing with dance, that if it's something that you say you love, if it's something that you say you're passionate about, then you want to know every nook and cranny about that area, whether it's dance, whether it's art, whether it's biology. So that constant, that's that constant reading and learning and understanding your craft and perfecting your craft. One thing that dancers understand There's no such thing as perfection, but we're constantly trying to achieve it. So if you talk to a dancer, they're never satisfied with their performance. People can say, oh, you, that was the most flawless dance. And they're like, no, but I didn't point my foot here. Oh, I could have done two turns there. Oh, You know, so understand you want to always perfect your craft and constantly perfect your craft. And that typically doesn't happen eight to five. (laughs) you know, that that we don't clock out after five. Oftentimes I was in the dance studio at nine and 10 o'clock at night. Even here now when I'm reading and studying uh, and I have to stop myself at nine nine o'clock at night and be like, look, you put in too much work today. You know, so so I'm constantly trying to perfect, not because I'm trying to outdo somebody outside of myself, but I want to maximize and be the best that I can be. And like I told you, like my band director, Excellent is not enough. I'm shooting for a superior, you know, so you always keep that in, in your head. Another thing that I, I would tell them, don't all don't trust everybody with your dream. Sometimes we're quick to share what we want to do and how we want to do it with everybody. Everybody shouldn't be trusted with your dream, uh, because sometimes you tell it to the wrong person and they, they come up with all these naysaying things. Why are you doing this? Why are you going here? Why are you trying that? And then after a while, you start start questioning your own ability. You start questioning your own self. That's why when I became a dancer, I didn't tell my family because I was still having to make these life changes about quitting my job, dancing. And then eventually, once I got to a certain level, I shared it with them. Not that I knew that they were going to be negative because, again, your family talked to you because they want to they care about you. Like, how are you going to make money from that? How are you going to? do? I didn't need to hear that because I'm still struggling with trying to make it happen. So my dream was still very fragile, and I didn't need that. So I only trusted it with people who would challenge me, yet support me to say, hey, have you thought about this? Hey, have you thought about that? Hey, you need me to come and pick you up and take you to dance lessons? Hey, you you know, oh, oh, yeah, I'll be at your performance. When is it? You know, so don't trust everybody with, don't, I always say, don't trust big dreams with small people. (laughs) you know, you know, and sometimes we do that and, and, and it crushes us when people start these people, sometimes your family out of good intentions, start coming with you, all these negative things. And then it really just kind of shatters you. So always to kind of keep that protected to yourself until you get to a level to say, Hey, look, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, if you can't buy into it, then I'm not gonna worry about it, you know, but this is my dream. And then also finally to realize that all of us have several talents. Uh, Oftentimes students will say, hey, you know, I have all these talents, but I don't know what to choose. You know, you don't have to, all of us come with several different talents. You may not be able to do them all at the same time, but you don't throw away your talents. Like with me, higher education, dancing, I still play my instrument. All those do still do fitness and all those different things. So you have many different talents, but you may not be able to do them at the same time. So you choose. You prioritize. You prioritize and say, "Hey, I'm gonna do this one for a little while. Once this gets up and running, then I'm gonna move to this one. Once this one is self-sustaining, I'm gonna move to." So you you get them to a certain point to where you can they can sustain themselves, and you're able to start adding on. Because even with me, higher education was my focus. Then when I when, when I got that solidified, I started dancing. So I was able to balance the two. And even some of my the dance companies were like, "You need to quit your job because to be a great dancer, you have to dance." all day, every day, so you're going to have to quit your full-time job. I'm like, no, I'm not quitting my full-time job. So I proved them wrong. I was able to balance working full-time and performing and training at the same time. Once I got those two sustained, then I started doing personal training. So all of those things start working together. And all of those people who said I couldn't do these things are the main ones hitting my phone up, trying to contract me to help them do theirs.
0: (laughs) Yes, I hope any students are listening. They have their pen and pad going, and they got (laughs) this. Is some of the best advice that I can say. I've I've been and I've experienced a lot of people who like to give advice when it comes to higher education, even if they necessarily don't have the best advice in my interest. You know, I love what you said about preserving your dream and trusting yourself and your own abilities and being superior. Because you know, at one point before I got into college, I wanted to pursue fine arts. I was you know pretty good at um drawing, but also I wanted to pursue acting and singing. I can't sing, but I can sing. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of fell out of that because I was told, you know, by my very STEM focused family that, you know, it's a very hard career to get into when there's this and that and these barriers, which, you know, you have to understand and take into account when you're going into fields like that or whatever field you're going into. But, you know, you also have to believe in yourself and your own ability to make success and, you know, persevere.
1: And again, oftentimes you're already fragile at that point and you are, you don't need those naysayers, even though they may have all the best intentions, it still hurts when they don't support you, but that's the way that they are trying to support you. But, you know, it's it's just not the support that you need at that time, you know? So you have to be very careful who you share that information with, because when I first started dancing, I had a serious meltdown. A serious meltdown because I had quit my job. I, 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 you know, because I had to throw myself in it because I started at a late age. So I had to really be dancing around the clock. Being naive, I'm thinking, oh, I'm Black. I can just, you know, we we can dance. I can just get in the class and start dancing and and all this different ballet and all. You know, I'm good at hip hop. I'm good at these things. And so I walked in this first ballet class. And, and again, I never had the opportunity to take beginning classes. I had to jump right into intermediate dance ballet. And mind you, I'm in this ballet class. I'm the only Black. They're looking at me like, oh, he's probably going to be able to dance his butt off. When When the ballet teacher started that music, she was like, what the heck is going on? He can't dance. My feelings were crushed because in my head, there's no substitute for training. There's no substitute. I don't care how a lot of us say I have natural talent. Yeah, you have natural raw talent, but there's nothing like structured, systemized uh, training that you need. Whether you're in the arts, anybody who's in the arts, anybody who's in any field, you can have these natural talents, but you still need to get some level of education because there are standards and structures to everything. And and I had a meltdown because I had quit my job. I'm in this ballet class. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. And the teachers now are not paying attention to me because I didn't live up to that expectation that they 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 thought as a black man, you know, because in their head you can see that they was like, oh, he's been to dance, he's the only black guy in this. I had two left feet, and I had and I had a breakdown. I went to my apartment. I was crying. I was pacing the floor. I was pacing the floor. I was telling my. I called my buddy. I'm like, I, it was horrible. You know, I'm breaking down. He all he said is. Do you want me to come and get you? That's all he said. He didn't, he didn't bat. He just said, Do you? And just by him saying, Do you want me to come and get you? Just knowing that I had that support, kind of calmed me down. And I was like, No, I said, No, I'm I'm gonna do this. So, what I did, I worked my butt off eight to eight to eight from eight in the morning to eight at nighttime. I was taking classes, even when classes were over, I would go to the empty studios because I knew I had to catch up. I, I these students. I was in a class with students who had been dancing for ten years, and this was my first day. <laughs> this is my first day. So I had years to make up, and it wasn't. I wasn't going to be able to make up those years just taking the basic classes. So, so whatever I didn't get in class, I would be in the studio by myself practicing. I was practicing so much, and so late at night time that they gave me a key to the studio to open up and lock at night time because I had to put in double duty. And then eventually my techniques start getting better, getting better, getting better, getting better. better. And now those teachers that wouldn't pay attention to me, they're like, oh, you're looking good. you want to do some choreography with me? And so that's why I said eight to five may not happen. Your work is not done. Because with me, in order for me to catch up, in order for me to compete with those students who have been dancing and those professionals who have been dancing for years, I had to make up for 10 years that I didn't have training. And and believe me, I was there like I was literally dancing probably 16 hours a day by myself in the studio. So that's why I'm hard on students when they say, oh, I love what I do, but I'm just going to halfway do it. No. Well, then you don't love what you do. You're not passionate about it
0: because you will be working on it right now. Anybody knows Dr. Turner. He likes to TCB, taking care of business. (laughs) You have to get that work done. (laughs) But it works out because you're dancing circles around us and we are just (laughs) (laughs) mystified. Awesome. So as we get ready to um, wrap up, um, I'd like to ask, this is a very simple question, but it can be one of the hardest questions for our guests to answer. But what is your favorite quote or life philosophy and why?
1: Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, And I actually have this quote at the bottom of my tagline. It's by um, Maya Angelou. And her quote is, my mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. You know, and that has always been my 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 kind of resonate in my head that, and I, and I kind of take that forward with my students, that I don't want you to just survive college. I don't want you to just survive life. I want you to thrive but understand you it needs to be done with passion and some compa- some compassion and humor and some style and that's why i always kind of think about that and that's kind of how my life has come and that's why i love to have fun or i my everything that i do now and i promise myself everything that i do would have to be something i enjoy at this stage of my life When I was younger, you do things maybe for the money. You do things to push you forward in your your career. But what we what people have always said: if you find what you love doing, it really doesn't feel like work. And so, like I told you earlier, we just got degrees because people told us to get degrees. So you have a lot of people my age who are who are um, in areas or majors or jobs that they didn't even get their degree in, you know, because we just wanted to get a job at that time and and. And that's why I wanted to kind of change that course of my life. I was like, no, I want to be happy with what I do. I want to be able to show up for work and love being there. Because one time in my life, I I had a job that I dreaded and hated. When I say passionately hated going to, I hated every minute being there. When I was at home, I was always thinking about how dumb the job was on the way to work. The next day, I'm hating going. So it was a cycle of hate. And I'm like, I, I don't see how people do this. He's like, I don't see how people live this way, you know, so I always put in my mind that I won't ever, if possible, put myself in that predicament that I hate what I do or people at my job makes me hate my job. You know, so that's why I say to thrive what you're doing, to do it with compassion and some passion and compassion and this style. I'm like, bring yourself to your job. Don't let anybody stifle you. If you're in a job that tells you how you should dress, how you should look, how you should act, well, then that's stifling you, you know? And I think right now in the moment that we're in, which I love it, that the workforce in the world is now kind of becoming more adaptive to generate the millennials and Gen Z that, hey, they want to bring all of them to work. They want to bring their personality, what they want to bring their life. They want to bring their colorfulness, you know, because- again, it helps people thrive and it helps create that sense of belonging. So that's why that particular quote is, is, is one that resonates with me because Maya Angela was such a profound uh, poet, activist, uh, dancer, all those different things. She actually also ran a brothel. Uh, she actually ran a brothel, right? <laughs> so if you look at her legacy, it wasn't as people think, oh, it was just this beautiful, you know, she didn't speak for like three years when she was a kid. Uh, but people are surprised when you say, yeah, she ran a brothel when she was, you know, but to also have some passion, some compassion and bring all of you, bring your style, bring your big personality, bring all of you, uh, which creates, it, it, it really sets other people free. What, what I say is if Ignacio doesn't bring all of his talents to the table, then I've been shortchanged because I don't get to learn from him. I don't get to grow from what he can offer if he doesn't bring all of him to the table, you know, so you
0: shortchange me when you don't bring all of you. Absolutely. hundred percent. And, you know, it's not just about having a job. It's about having a career that you love and doing what you love. So I'm really glad. Exactly.
1: That. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Dr. Turner it has been a pleasure and a privilege to sit down with you. Um, do you have any closing remarks, any final say? And, Leslie, how can students reach you to contact you?
1: No I think that I think this covered a whole lot and I, and I and I uh, love the thoughtful questions that you posed to me uh, and i'm I'm glad to be a part of this uh, this series of black excellence. I think you guys are doing a awesome job over there. so I'm really proud of all of all of you and the work that you're doing and the personalities that you bring and and the collaboration that you do like I said, I love that energy and that's what I've been hoping for. Uh, since i've been here or that's what i hope for with all student organizations because again this is this is supposed to be a compliment to college this is supposed to be that that good part of college where you get to hang and you get to be with the programs you get to make new friends so this this so i love to see when all of you are together and you're laughing and you're joking you know because that's what college is all about that's what makes going to college fun when you have this community of friends and people so I am happy of the work that you guys are doing uh, over there in the program and even collaborating with people around the campus. And the way that students can reach me again, they can always reach me at my email address at peturner at nmsu.edu or uh, at my phone number which is 575-646-7926. Or again, they could just drop by my office over in Guthrie. But uh, you know, pretty much everybody knows who I am and, and where I am on campus. So I'm always
0: accessible. Thank you once again, Dr. Turner. It has been a pleasure getting to talk to you about so many impactful issues and situations. Thank you. This has been a wonderful episode and we want to keep you engaged and informed about Black programs. So be sure to visit our website at blackprograms.nmsu.edu to learn about our programs and various activities. You can also email us at blackpro.nmsu.edu. Be sure to join us next week when we have a one-on-one with Dr. Monique matute Shavadia, associate professor in the College of Education who specializes in special education. Thanks again for tuning in. And remember, preservation of one's own culture does not require disrespect or contempt of other cultures. Thank you once again.